Good morning. So tonight, in our Bible study, we're going to be studying about the mercy and love of God. That'll be in our attribute study tonight. If you haven't been attending, you're welcome to come and join us. We'd love to have you do that. So I'd like to, this morning, consider those perfections of Yahweh, His mercy and His love. Briefly, His mercy, and then I want to major on His love. The Bible tells us that God's mercy is, and this is a New King James Version translation, and if you want the, if you want the biblical references, just email me, I'll send you my notes, or I'll give you a copy of my notes, I'm not going to give you the references. The Bible tells us that His mercy is great, it's plenteous, it's tender, it's abundant, and it is everlasting for those who fear Him. I love the way David talks about this in Psalm 145, he says, the Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all of his works. You guys know Charles Spurgeon, famous 19th century English preacher, they say the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. He said this, Not one, not even God's fiercest enemy can deny his mercy, since the very existence of the lips which deny it is proof that he is merciful, that he allows his enemies to blaspheme him and speak against him and say all manner of evil about him, this proves his mercy. He allows his enemies to do this. Spurgeon goes on. God allows his enemies to live. He supplies them with food and grants them with many comforts. For them the sun shines as brightly as if they were saints. And the rain waters their fields as plentiful as if they were godly men. And of course we know uh, Jesus says that effectively. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Tonight in our study, in A.W. Pink's book, he makes the point that mercy presupposes sin. Apart from sin, there, we would never be aware of God's mercy. So it presupposes sin. You know what he said? Yahweh said to eat of the tree of the garden would be what? Would be certain death. Yet we ate, and there's 8 billion of us still walking around. I think I had that question a couple of weeks ago. Why are you still walking around? You're a sinner. To sin means death, according to the Word of God. So there's been a lot of mercy for these thousands of years, right? A lot of mercy. You've received a lot of mercy. We did the math a couple of weeks ago, right, when we were talking about the patience of God. And I told you as a 67 and a half year old man, I have sinned 382,000 times. That's, that's conservatively. Conservative assumptions. There's been a lot of mercy and a lot of patience God has shown to rebellious man. And I did say, yeah, we ate. We were there. I know some people don't like the... the the doctrine of original sin, but you and I are guilty. The Bible asserts that we were in and with our first parents as we rebelled against God. We are complicit in that first sin and every other sin that we've personally engaged in. I know that some people don't like it when that is taught, but I would simply ask you if that's your position 
Who do you think's contention is going to matter more on the last day? Yours or the Lord's? So we've repeated in this series over and over again. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. So there has been a lot of mercy for mankind in general and for you in particular. So why are we still walking around? Because Yahweh's mercy is great. It is plenteous. It is tender. It is abundant. And his mercies are over all of his works. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, uh, a great sermon. He preached it. Uh, I borrowed it, some of it, some excerpts from it for the last book I wrote. Some of you have read these, some of these excerpts from his famous sermon. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. And he gives an urgent warning to, to both unbelievers and lukewarm shall we say, nominal church attenders. Listen to what he says. As God has multiplied mercies, you have multiplied provocations, right? As God has multiplied mercies, as an unbeliever, or as, shall we say a nominal churchgoer, a lukewarm churchgoer, you have multiplied the provocations of God. This is his main point. This is his main point. In light of God's great, tender, abundant mercies, moment to moment, men are provoking the wrath of God in our persistent indifference. I've been doing this a long time. I've been in church all my life. I can't tell you how many folks I've run into, churchgoers who seem to be basically indifferent toward God on a daily basis. Now, they can attend church on Sunday, but on a daily basis, on a daily basis, at home, at work, in the neighborhood, surfing the Internet, completely indifferent to the greatness and glory of their Creator. To ignore multiplied mercies, which is what the unbeliever in the world and the lukewarm person in the church does every time they inhale is to, at that very moment, incur the wrath of God. And yet, we're still walking around. This is mercy, beloved. This is mercy. This is the mercy of God. I love what D.A. Carson says about, on the last day, those who will be cast into hell. He says, not only will justice be done, justice will be seen to be done. What I want to say to you is thanklessness for his manifold mercies is enough to land you in hell. I mean, if you're perfect in every other conceivable way, but you are thankless for the bountiful mercies of God on a daily basis, that's enough to send you to hell. Edwards writes to those who are engaged in multiplying the provocations of God. Listen to this short, short paragraph. Listen to what he says. Have you not taken encourage? This is, this is so powerful. Every church member needs to hear this, right? Every church member in America needs to hear this. Have you not taken encouragement to sin against God on the very presumption that God will show you mercy? He says the devils don't do this. This is a wickedness that the devils don't even engage in. 
But church members do. I'll sin all I want. I'll get mercy. Well, we all understand, don't we? That's a gross misrepresentation of what the Bible has to say. Edwards continues. Herein you have exceeded the devils, for they never rejected the offers of such glorious mercy, nor uh, any mercy at all. As we know, the fallen angels, God just gave them what? Justice. Never offered them mercy. Never offered them grace. He continues. This will be the distinguishing condemnation of the gospel sinner. He's talking about the lukewarm church member, the gospel sinner. This will be the distinguishing uh, condemnation. He says, the blame will lie at your door. You have destroyed yourself. Now, this boy could preach, right? <laughs> this boy could preach. You know, I've told you, we don't come in here and pretend, right? That's not wise. We come in here before a holy and awesome God. And if we need to tremble, we're happy to do it. We're happy to tremble before this great God. I just want to say if there are any here who are presuming upon God's mercy, which as Edward says, is a provocation to his anger and wrath and judgment, which is no small provocation, I just invite you to repent right here, right now, today. Repent. You know what the writer of Hebrews said? If you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts. Come. Come. And receive the mercy and grace of God. You know how David talks about this? A couple of different Psalms. He says, God's mercy, it reaches to the heavens. This is how great it is. It's unfathomable. His mercy is unfathomable. He continues. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards those who what? Play religion. No, those who fear him. We've been talking a lot about this all through this series. Are you willing to tremble before Yahweh? Have you really reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God? Have you really? Well, if you have really, I know that in your prayer closet you have trembled. I know. If you have really dealt with who God is, you have trembled. I know you have. I know you have. So if you desire to dive deeper into the mercy of God, come tonight. We're going to talk a little bit more about it. But the rest of this morning, I want to spend on the love of God. We have three chapters in our book we're studying on the love of God. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, any church, you know a lot about the love of God. Preachers like to preach on the love of God. Well, why not? I love to preach on the love of God. But did you notice the sermon title? Anybody notice the love of God what? In context. In a biblical context. Not in a pseudo-gospel context. A denominational, you know, refit context. But a biblical context. A biblical context. Which, you know, I know your teachers have taught you well here. Context always matters. It always matters. Matters If we're going to be honest and have some integrity with the word of God. So my goal this morning is to simply lay some essential context regarding God's love by looking at the most famous verse in the Bible. You heard 
Joe, read it. Most famous verse about the love of God, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, my good brother and Greek teacher told me I should look at the New English translation. That's Dr. Vaden, for all of you who don't know Dr. Vaden. He's my English tutor. And I love, the, I love this. I love this translation. New English translation. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So as, as, as I thought about John 3.16 some years ago, as I thought deeply about it, I, uh, the Lord gave me the, the, the idea of just looking, really looking at the context of it. You don't get to rip anything out of context. I know most preachers do. I know a lot of careless Christians do. They just rip texts out of context, which is always a what? Pretext, right? A text out of context is always a pretext. So who's Jesus talking to? You guys know in John 3. He's talking to Nicodemus, a religious leader. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that his misguided religion is worthless. Context matters. It matters. So preceding John 3.16, Jesus is condemning uh, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And he starts to talk about the supernatural nature of salvation. So he's going to blow, you know, Nicodemus's mind here. And your average Southern Baptist mind here. Just going to get blown right here. The quintessential verse regarding conversion. You must be born again. How supernatural is that? It doesn't get any bigger than that. This is God's work right off the bat. Bam! Your self-righteousness is worthless, Nicodemus. It's worthless. You know, your Phariseeism is worthless. If you're not born again. It's big. It's a big verse. I guess I could preach 20 sermons on this chapter alone. Right after John 3.16, we're going to get there in a minute, but I just want to let you, I'm give you a heads up here. Right after John 3.16, Jesus starts talking about judgment. Okay, <laughs> okay. We have the two doctrines your average Southern Baptist hates. Right? This sandwich, you know, John 3.16, the verse they love. And why shouldn't we love it? We do love it. We should love it. But God's talking about the decisive sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people. And we come down to John 3.16, and right after that, he begins to talk about his wrath for those who do not believe. These are the two doctrines that are most ignored, most hated, most denied in your average Southern Baptist church. So, context. We are going to look context. Let me just say, you don't get to rip a text out of context. I actually can't think of a more arrogant thing to do than to do that, to rip a text out of context. It's not only arrogant, it's dangerous. God does not take kindly 
to his words being taken out of context. You guys remember, I trust, the words of God to Eliphaz over in Job 42.7. God said, My wrath is kindled against you because you have not spoken of me what is right. Amen? Now, how many, how many preachers are standing in pulpits right now preaching out of context? It's an, it's an epidemic. You know, your elders won't do that. Hey, if all of you leave, we'll preach to each other in context. Maybe our wives will come, maybe they won't come. I hope they come. Would you come? Karen will come. I got, I got a commitment. We will preach the text in context. And there's probably nobody better I've ever been around than Vaden. I can get a little carried away sometimes. But Vaden's one of the best. So, let's just start here, beginning of the chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But first, I, 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 okay, how deep is the love of God? How long is the love of God? How, you know... How far back into eternity past does it go? Well, we know Ephesians chapter 1, right? In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're going to talk about the love of God. We have to go to Ephesians 1 first. It starts in eternity past. It starts in eternity past. And then we begin to look at John 3. You guys know the story. Verse 1. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then it's bam. <laughs> you know, I, I love it. Don't you, love, don't you love the way Jesus talks? Jesus said to him, truly, truly. Now, what does that mean? You got to hear this. You got to get this. This is really important. You can't preach over this. You can't ignore this. This is context. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is context. John 3.16 is going to come right after this. Okay. Nicodemus said, how can this be? You guys know what he says. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, here it is again. I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is all supernatural, right? Have you heard anything about church attendance yet? Have you heard anything about praying the magic prayer? Have you heard anything about baptism yet? No. This is all supernatural. This is all God. Jesus said, don't marvel. <laughs> I said this to you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, the quintessential definitive verse regarding Christian conversion. Now I'm going to ask you this question. You probably have heard it before. Maybe you haven't. But if you don't understand what I'm saying, just come ask me. I'll try to explain it if I can't explain it. Dr. Vaden will explain it. Does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration precede faith? Now, this is the question that my seminary professor put to us. Which is it? 
Which is it? Well, if we're going to believe the Son of God, I think we have to believe that it's the latter. Regeneration precedes faith. It's all supernatural, beloved. It's God. It's God. It is God. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is an allusion to the Old Testament washing of, of the Jew. This is one thing God does in, in, in regeneration. We know that born, the born again thing is, is uh, noted in Old Testament and New Testament. You guys know Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll take out that heart of stone. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Why? In love. He predestined his people. It's all over John 3. He just never uses those words. You have to go to Ephesians 1. The Bible interprets the Bible. Right? The Bible is not interpreted by the, the statement of faith of the denomination. Now, it may be right. It may not be right. The Bible interprets the Bible. I love this. I love this. I've always loved this analogy. It's like the wind, right? It's like the wind. Men can't control the wind. They can't generate and manage conversion. Only God does that. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. But God is accomplishing his good pleasure through the wind. I love that. Now, Nicodemus was an impressive man, most likely to be voted um, the man who would impress God the most. I suspect Nicodemus may have well expected Jesus to congratulate him on his impressive religious credentials. What did Jesus say to this impressive religious man? You are nowhere. You are nowhere with God. You impressive religious man. You are nowhere. You need a miracle. Now wait, I, I thought we just prayed a prayer. I thought that was it. That's not how Jesus talks. Jesus says, you need a miracle. You have to be one of the born of God ones, right? John 1.13, the God begotten, the born of God ones. It's huge, beloved. It's huge. It's worship-provoking. It'll cause you to tremble if you think deeply about it. In verses 11 through 21, one key word appears seven times. Who knows what it is? The word is believe. What must you do? Here's your responsibility. <laughs> We've already talked a little bit about sovereignty, but here's your responsibility. You've got to believe. Say, Jim, I feel some tension there. Okay, good. So has every other theologian through the history of the church. There is tension there. Before we look at uh, those verses, I, I just want to remind you what to believe means. What we, you know, the Bible interprets the Bible. We know what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean, I believe facts. That's not what believe means. Saving faith does not mean I simply believe historical facts about the Christ. 
That's not what it means. We know the devils believe. They believe every fact. In fact, they believe them uh, more than you do because they tremble. <laughs> Some of us don't tremble. So the devils believe. So we know it's not just about facts. You know, genuine belief, as the Bible talks about it, it's conspicuous. Something changes in the life. The life changes. It's, again, palpable, observable, recognizable. It's like the wind. Conversion is like the wind. A true believer walks like the wind is blowing. It's the wind and the wind is blowing. Everybody around you feels the breeze, right? The wind is blowing. God's wind is blowing through our lives. We know James 1.22. <laughs> Real Christians, what? They do the word. And again, I'm, I'm just teasing out what it means to believe. We do the word. Those who simply hear, what? Anybody remember? Those who simply hear the word and don't do it are what? Deluded. And reason, hey, listen, reason I'm, I'm so hard on church members sometimes is because I was one for my first 28 years of life. I was as dead as a hammer spiritually. Got that from Higgins. I know what it's like to be a, a, a lukewarm church member. I know what it's like. So, maybe I'm a little hard. I guess I'm talking about myself in that regard. The Bible's clear. We are saved by God, Titus 3.5. He saved us uh, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to, here it is, His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We are called to believe, to commit, to trust, to place our confidence in God, and our lives give evidence of that fact, Right? It's not academic. People can hear it in our speech. They see it in our deeds. In verses 15, 16, and 18, belief is to believe is a present active participle. I knew you'd like this part. It reveals what? Continuous action. You don't just believe once and I'm saved. You know, how many guys have you run into? Well, are, are you a Christian? Yeah, I was baptized when I was eight. And that's all they can talk to you about. They don't have anything since they were eight. You know, that's how I was when I was 28. I didn't have anything to say. Oh, I gave a dollar once, I think. I hated it, but I gave it. I'm sure God was proud of that. Present active participle. It means we presently, actively, continually believe. The, the wind never stops blowing in the Christian's life. It's always blowing. Jesus is going to effectively say this over in verse 21. You can look at it real quick. What does he say? But he who what? He who what? What does your Bible say? He who what? Practices the truth comes to the light. The wind's blowing. We practice truth. We don't just talk about it. It's important to talk about it. But we practice it. Verses 9 through 11 here. Nicodemus said, Oh, 
How can these things be? Jesus said, oh, you're teaching. You don't know. Verse 11, truly, truly, again, there it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of, that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Again, he's saying, you know, truly, truly, this is like Jim. I really want you to get this. Robert, you really need to get this. Lisa, I really want you to understand this. He said that up in verse five, verse three, verse five, verse 11. And you're going to forget this context before you jump into John three sixteen. I don't think so. I don't think so. How many times have you heard this false gospel that God loves you unconditionally? The Bible never says this. It never says this. It's not unconditional. What are we going to learn here in John 3? What is it? You must what? You must what? Believe. Present, active, continually believe. Not just sign a card. Yeah, I believe that stuff. God's not going to care about the card you sign. He's not even going to ask you about that. Beloved, this is huge. John 3 is like so big. You know, really, you could do 100 sermons out of here. Nicodemus has been saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. Jesus says, it's not that you don't get it. You don't believe it. <laughs> it's always a moral issue. <laughs> True belief is a moral issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. You know, religion's easy, right? It's easy to come to church. Yeah, you have to get up. You have to brush your teeth. You have to, find, you have to press your, your, your clothes. You have to come. It's easy. Church is easy. Being religious is easy. It was easy for Nicodemus. It was effortless for Nicodemus. It's a whole nother thing to walk with Jesus Christ. That is a whole nother thing. Okay? It's easy to be a church member. But if you love Christ and you really walk with him, it's not always going to be easy. And I don't have time to fully develop that. Verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus nails Nicodemus here on the core issue. Again, it's not intellectual understanding. That's not what it's about. Effectively, Jesus says, you're, you're a model of religious uh, zeal, but you're a son of hell. You guys remember when Jesus gives, what is it, the ten woes or seven woes? I can't remember. Eight woes in, in the chapter of Matthew. He's talking to the religious people. And he says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. You know, it's just, it's, it's damnation on you, damnation on you, damnation on you. That's what woe means. For thinking you could impress the Father with your religion. Verses 13 to 15. Jesus talks about, he, he's just showing Nicodemus that he is the Messiah, right? No one has, has ascended unto heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, he's claiming to be the Messiah. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Again, he's just making a simple declaration. This Old Testament Jew would understand the whole thing that happened in Numbers, recorded in Numbers. He is the Messiah. He's claiming to be Messiah. What will Nicodemus do with that? Verse 16. And here it is. The, the, the verse most often ripped out of context. <laughs> and, I, and I know these guys, shame on them. They shouldn't be in the pulpit, right? They shouldn't be in the pulpit. I know some of them may have, they may say they have altruistic motives, which is to get as many people to come as possible. But, you know, that's kind of a blasphemous, backhanded blasphemous kind of thing, Right? I don't need to get as many people to come as possible. God will get his people. Right? God will get his people. He'll get every one of them. And if there's one missing, he'll go get him. I don't need to convince you that God loves you. That's not my job. It's not my job. My job is to proclaim the text. And then you deal with it, right? You deal with it. Between you and the Lord. Obviously, if you have questions, I'm happy to, to answer. Any of the elders would be happy to do so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First John 4, 8 tells us that God doesn't simply love. He is Love. God's love is pure, perfect, eternal, infinite, gracious, and holy, but not unconditional. If you actually believe what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must believe. It's not unconditional. You must believe. And this is where many today presume upon God. They ignore the whole message of the Bible. The, the, it's, it's, it's caricaturing God and the love of God. God loves you no matter what. Now, some preachers won't actually use those words, but that's the implication. No matter what, whether you really believe continuously, actively, presently or not, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Will you do me a favor? Don't ever say that to someone. Don't ever say that to someone, please. If you want to know why, I'll tell you, you can you can come ask me. Many believe God will wink at their sin like an overindulgent grandfather and set aside his other revealed attributes. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is not even what this verse teaches. God, Jesus starts talking about judgment right here. Did you see it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What does that mean? Some people will perish. What does it mean to perish? It's the second death. You will be cast into hell. God does this. Have you read the last book of the Bible? God does this. You will be cast into hell if you do not believe with a saving faith. that always gives evidence. The wind's always blowing, <laughs> right? The wind is always blowing through the true 
believer's life. Yahweh doesn't cease to be righteous and holy. He doesn't cease to to be angry with those who practice sin. He doesn't cease to judge those who are indifferent toward his son. He gives nobody a free pass. Somebody had to die. Either Jesus died for your sins or you will. What does it mean to perish in this context? Eternal death. Obviously men die temporally, but we will, those who are outside of Christ will die eternally. Just look at the verse again. This is not a universal free pass into eternal life. You must believe, present, active, participle, presently, actively, continually believing. That's what saving faith looks like. That's what saving faith looks like. What does the verse say about those who believe? They will not perish. What's the implication for those who do believe? They will perish. Here it is, right here. Judgment, right there. The most famous verse in the Bible about the love of God. Some will perish. You see, what, you see why I hate this? this? These texts ripped out of context? It's egregious. It's wicked. There's a lot of people walking around out there who think they're Christians because their pastor told them that God loved them unconditionally. This is wickedness. This is satanic deception. It's what it is. Now, if I'm wrong, you come, tell, you come show me. I'll change my sermon. I'm always willing to change my sermon. I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm nothing up here. I'm less than nothing up here. And I'm worse than nothing if I don't tell you the truth. Some will perish. Revelation 20, 14 and 15. That is the second death. So wrath is here. Right in the most famous verse about the love of God in the Bible. Wrath is here. Context matters. It matters. Whoever believes presently, actively, continually should not perish. That means should not be cast into hell, but have eternal life. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus starts to talk about, about judgment. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 16 clearly says that we must believe or we will perish. Verse 18 says that we are judged already because many, uh, what I want, my point is many want to use verse 17 as to teach universal salvation, right? God did not come, did not send the Son into the world to, to judge the world. What is the, what is the, what does John 9.39 say? You guys know John 9.39? Jesus is talking, John 9.39, for judgment I came into the world. So what's the truth? Both. Both are true. He was sent in the world to save. He was sent into the world to judge. Both are true. They're both true. No, no uh, mystery there. He who believes in Jesus presently, actively, continually is not judged. Mankind arrogantly, arrogantly thinks that he can be indifferent to Jesus by playing religious games. 
Read your Bible. Just take a read through. Old Testament, New Testament, God hates this. Okay, let's get this right. We talked about it a week or two ago, right? <laughs> we just celebrated. Yahweh's in a manger. Well, why is Yahweh in a manger? Because you and I desperately need Yahweh to be in a manger. Because He's going to a cross, right? God's in a manger. And God's going to bleed out. And men say, nah. I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in my career. I'm more interested in my family. I'm more interested in money. I'm more interested in pornography. I'm more interested in whatever. Do you see the insult here? God in a manger. God on the cross. And we say, nah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're there. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, required presupposition. There has to be an adequate first cause. I believe you there, but I'll just play some church with you. I'll just do church. Surely that will assuage you. Right here in the most famous verse in the Bible about the love of God, he starts to talk about judging those who do not believe. This is kind of a big deal, beloved. Kind of a big deal. Man says, well, we'll make our own way to God, like the, like the apostate Judaism that Nicodemus was involved in. We'll substitute religion for relationship like Nicodemus. We'll trust in our own piety and self-righteousness like Nicodemus. Because you know God's love. He's love. How do you know He's love? Well, I heard a preacher say it one time, so I'm not worried about it. He loves me. And the guy said it's unconditional. <laughs> How many people will be in hell because they heard some preacher say something and they believed it? And they didn't ask for context. Let's finish. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil for everyone who... Um, does evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So there it is. Right after the, the most famous verse in the Bible, God's talking about immediate judgment that will fall on those who do not believe. We already looked at verse 21. He who practices the truth, what? Comes to the light. Listen, we're back to sovereignty, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Listen, man, you better have a big God. You're going to claim to be a Christian, a real one, a Bible-believing Christian. You better have a big God who saves his people from beginning to end, right? So, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Will you never forget... That the most famous verse in the Bible about the love of God is sandwiched between the two doctrines that the average pseudo-Christian church member hates. Sovereignty and wrath. 
right there. So don't you dare rip this text out of context. Don't do it. You may hear what Eliphaz heard. Yahweh said, my wrath is kindled against you, for you have not spoken about me as to what is right. That's a paraphrase. Beloved, it matters how we handle the word of God. You know, I, I know your elders. I mean, like, OK, we tremble. <laughs> we tremble at this. We do. We tremble. And if everybody leaves, we're just going to, like I said, we'll just be here trembling. Waiting for the glorious day when we're called home or the Lord Jesus comes back. So God has scripturally revealed the sovereign election of his people. Verses 3, 5, 7, 8, 21 in John 3. God has scripturally revealed that he will damn all who do not believe. Verse 16, 18, 19, and 20. Context matters. The word of God matters. He says what he means. He means what he says. So let us endlessly rejoice in the unfathomable love of God, but let us never dare take his love out of context. Let's not turn it into sentimentality. God so loved the world that he gave his son, but he never ceases to be righteous, holy, and angry. What does the psalmist say? He's angry with the wicked, what? Every day. We have to have some integrity. But we shouldn't even be here. We're not going to have integrity. We shouldn't be here. We should go do something else. So, as Christians, we can't simply major on mercy and love without blaspheming God. I know you think, well, Jim, you, you say that all the time, but I believe it. I believe it's blasphemous to simply paint a caricature of God. There's too much at stake. Everything's at stake forever. Everything forever is at stake. I hope every one of you know that and believe that. So we can't simply major on the attributes that we are drawn to. And I want to say this and I'm done. Because all of God does all that God does. You say, Jim, that's... That's a lot to think about. Yeah, all of God does all that God does. God's justice is expressed in perfect symmetry with his mercy. His compassion is expressed in perfect symmetry with his vengeance. His wrath is expressed in perfect symmetry with his love. Beloved, God does not take kindly to being caricatured. So let's have some integrity with this word. Let's pray together.